death is not the end. Of the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. I was hoping you'd be back. My name is Brett Arnold at Brett Redacted on Twitter. I am here yet again with Jesse Hassinger at Rock Marooned on Twitter and wherever else uh, records are sold. Um, <laughs> we're here today to talk about The Exorcist to The Heretic. Uh, was once just called The Heretic. John Borman did not want to put The Exorcist title on this thing. Of course, Warner Brothers extremely did. <laughs> um, this movie has a reputation as one of the worst sequels of all time. So we will get into why that is and do- does it live up to that reputation or not. Um, I watched the movie f- three and a half times, I would say. I watched it once through the original theatrical version. Then I tried to watch that ver- same version with the commentary from director John Borman. But that track... My God, it's like he's just, he's an old man at this point, and he is just like eating almonds the whole time or something, <laughs> and just like is not interested at all in talking about, like, he's not, no one's leading the discussion, so it just is him kind of rambling, and it was not helpful. I listened to that for about an hour before I went into the other two commentaries, which are like by just kind of historians and fans of this movie who know a lot about it, and I found those very insightful. And my opinion on this movie has morphed a lot over the past few days. Um, and that movie, as I mentioned earlier, is Exorcist to the Heretic, a.k.a. Call Me By My Dream Name, <laughs> a.k.a. The Good Locust. I have a lot of working titles that I think are better, um, especially considering the scene upon which the name The Heretic comes from is not in any version of this movie. There are, there are three cuts of it. And none of them have the heretic scene, which is in the, I guess there's something called what I guess is probably the assembly cut, but there's a version that's 20 minutes longer that has never been seen that has all this stuff that's in the script. Uh, But we'll get into all that later. Before that, uh, a handful, a smidgen of news today, not that much since we recorded less than a week ago for The Exorcist. Anything new to report on your end? Did you watch anything interesting? What's going on in the Hassinger household? 
Uh, nothing that interesting to report. I did watch, and I, I bring this up only because it seems like a lot of people hate it. I watched Project Power on Netflix and thought it was super fun. I don't, I don't really know. I keep know what seeing people... people rating this movie on Letterboxd, and I honestly don't know anything about it. Uh, from, from what, from the poster, I've gathered that Jamie Foxx, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and a third person are in it. Yes, that is correct. Um, it's a, it's one of those movies like... Fast Color or The Old Guard or you remember the movie Push from a bunch of years ago. Oh, for where Chris like, Evans and a fanning, I think? Yes, yes. It's like one of those movies where it's like about superpowers but not based on a comic and not featuring kind of traditional superheroes. So like a, a, a jumper. Yes. Oh, perfect example. Like a jumper. Yes. <laughs> uh, or a I, I, I am number four. <laughs> Oh, God. I, I could I keep going, a, dude. I think I have more. <laughs> I guess there's more of these than I thought. Maybe you have to revise that pitch I'm working on. I, uh, I, was, I don't mean to get off track, but I, I have to mention that I, when I was at the Colosseum in Rome, uh, the tour guide was like, many movies have been shot here, including The Jumper. Including uh, The Jumper. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, it's a nice the jumper. Oh, that's incredible. Um, anyway, yes, this movie's like is much like the jumper, except it's good. Um, and I mean, it's it's fine. It's like. The Do guys you remember did... that they were planning like a jumper trilogy or a franchise? Yeah, it's at very the time. clear from watching Jumper that they are <laughs> setting up far more things to happen in the world of Jumper. <laughs> Whatever happened to that? Oh no. <laughs> They should come back and do it for Hulu or whatever, you know. Yeah, some, but you know do what? That's like, it's such like a TNT cable movie that, yeah. like, yeah, it would do very well on a streaming service if they did some <laughs> like. I mean, what is Hayden Christensen doing? Maybe, exactly. Yeah, He's, or Rachel Bilson. Same. I, I guess they got divorced, but or, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Hayden Christensen. I think there's rumors that there's some Disney Plus thing with him and 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 uh, Ewan back. Is that true? He, I think there are rumors that he might be involved in some capacity with the Obi Wan series. Giving the people what they want, more Anakin and Obi Wan. I think what the people really want is Jumper two Jumper. through five or whatever we were <laughs> promised. Uh, yeah, it, the first one didn't do that. It's not like a flop. It made like eighty million dollars, which that ain't hey. Yeah, I remember thinking it would still get a sequel because of how it did, and it never, it yeah. still never did. They still was like, like, who directed that? Is that like a DJ Caruso or something? No, it's Doug Liman. Oh shit! Yeah. So Doug Liman went on to do great things. <laughs> yeah, he did great things before and after. Yeah. Jumper. Wow. Uh, and bad stuff too. So. <laughs> Now that I've made Project Power sound like a fucking terrible movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry. I, that was That's my me. fault. No, no. I, I'm always happy to talk about Jumper. It's, but, um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's actually the directors are these, these directors who were the, the non-annoying half of Catfish. Oh, uh, the Juiced Henry Juiced and the Shulman. They did, they've yeah, done, they've yeah. done horror. They did uh, the Paranormal sequels. Yeah. The Paranormal they Activities. Three, three and four. And they did something also horror called Viral or something like that that I never oh, saw. Oh, Nerve. I really like Nerve. Yeah, Nerve is awesome. Nerve, Nerve fucking rules. This movie isn't as good as Nerve, but you can tell that the same people made it. It's like antsy and like overstylized. Oh, I'm already like, sold based on who's directed it. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. It's got cool lighting. You know, it's like, it's pretty dumb and it's not as endearing as Nerve because like, and I think Emma Roberts is like innately likable and like that's a, like a fun coming of age story and this is more of a like gritty superheroes but it's a, it's and it's dumb but it's a fun movie i don't know i like i just get so bored of superhero movies looking a certain boring overcast you know uh, gray sky kind of way this one is like at night there's red filters on everything 
It's just like, I don't it looks know. Looks like it's it was dumb. shot in New Orleans, which I love. It, yes, it was shot in New Orleans. It's It just has a little bit more, like, atmosphere and energy. It's one of those things where the people get hung up on, like, oh, this is such a great premise. The premise is there's a drug that you take, uh, a pill you can take, and you get superpowers for five minutes. Yes. And you don't know and, at the outset what, what the power will be, although I believe, according to the movie, it's consistent once you take the pill. Like, you always get the same one. Oh, interesting. Minutes. That's like a Family Guy gag where the, in, the, in a viewer mail episode in, like, season one where they all get superpowers <laughs> and Meg Griffin just gets extended fingernails that <laughs> grow out. I would imagine someone takes the pill and they're like, oh, what the fuck? This yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's one of many things they don't really capitalize. So it's one of those things where, like, nerds are always like, oh, this is such a great premise and they don't really capitalize on it. But I'm like, what does anything ever capitalize on anything? Like, I don't know. I just watched this movie for, like, for cool lighting. Joseph Gordon-Levitt being kind of charming. Uh, the girl in it, who's, like, a teenage girl, was a young black woman who's, uh, who's Dominique like... Dominique sort of, Fishback. Yeah, the hero of the movie. She, I found her... I thought her performance was good. It's both it's both grounded and, and pretty charming. This Jamie sounds Fox. like a less shitty bright, in a way. I mean, less, yeah, like, less yeah. mythical, but, I mean, still has, like, a high-concept, uh, streamy yeah. premise. It's like Bright Gone Right. It's like Bright you know, Gone Right. That's your headline. That's Did you use quote. that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just I just watched it on a Friday night. It's 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 like, you know, all year we've been watching movies on Netflix and shit. Like, you know, and watching them fail to recapture what it's actually like going to the movies, especially in the summer when you're going to see like big splashy, you know, Marvel movies or Christopher Nolan movies. This movie, it's not like it's a you know Marvel movie or a DC movie or Christopher Nolan movie or anything like really good. But like it came out in the middle of August, and it is very it very accurately reflects what it's like to go see a sort of big movie in the middle of August. Oh like, man, this feels like it's getting like the Hitman's Bodyguard slot <laughs> at the box <laughs> office. I liked it way more than Hitman's Bodyguard, so it, it's a pretty solid August movie. I'm probably overhyping it because I'm told by very smart people that this movie is stupid and sucks. But I don't know. I had a good time watching it. It's it was a lot. I think the the real shitty thing I'm going to say is that it's like way better than the old guard. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I'm, you definitely sold me. And now I just tricked myself into a question that I don't know the answer to. Did, I know the Hitman's Bodyguard got a surprising sequel. Did that already happen? And did it? Did we see it that? Was... And do I just have no memory of it? <laughs> no, I think it was actually slated at some point for just about now, like this week, this coming weekend. And at some point it was quietly kicked off to next, the same weekend next year. So next this, summer, oh, Jesus if Christ. all things go well, we'll get to see the Hitman's Bodyguard Part 2. Or it's actually called the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. And yes, the, the leading yes. lady is um, Salma Hayek. I don't remember okay. if she's in the first one. All I remember about that first movie is that people, it was basically every review was like a two and a half stars. Like, it's fine, but there was nothing out for like the entire month. So this movie just did super well. Yeah. And like held on and made a bunch of money. And like, yeah, I feel like it's probably I don't have cable, but I assume it's probably on TNT right now uh, <laughs> as we speak on a loop all day. Uh -huh. uh, and yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. It's just funny to me when movies like that break through and it's like, yeah, we're getting the hitman's wife's bodyguard, which will surely not hit the same way as <laughs> the hitman's not, bodyguard. did. Especially if, if movie theaters do open for next summer, you're going to have like 50 huge movies. <laughs> yeah. coming out. And then here comes hitman's wife's bodyguard. Oh my god! Wasn't what was the other Salma Hayek thing that like Miguel Artera movie? Uh, oh, Beatrice at dinner. Oh uh, no, that one was good. I liked that, but there was a recent one that was like a big studio comedy with Rose Byrne and oh, Tiffany Haddish. Yeah, yeah, like a boss. Like a yeah, boss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that trailer I saw a thousand times. I feel like I don't need to watch the movie, but <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, okay, so we've talked about Project Power, which uh, is on Netflix now, and I will definitely watch. Um, I don't think I watched anything of note. That's probably not true. Let me quickly, um, I'm not logged into Letterboxd, so screw that. We are going to do news <laughs> instead, yeah. pivoting right to the news. So the first bit of news is AMC has announced their opening plan for their movie theaters. Um because some parts of the country are opening them again, even though it's probably not the best idea. Uh, New York City, which is, you know, doing pretty well at keeping the virus at bay, uh, is has not opened them and will not anytime soon. So take this all with a grain of salt. But AMC is celebrating its 100-year anniversary by reopening its theater chain with 15-cent tickets at more than 100 locations on August 20th. That is uh, three days from now. Theaters are opening across the country. I will have to look at a list and see where because it's nowhere near me. Um, well, you, did you see like moment hours ago Cuomo was asked about movie theaters? At oh a press no, conference I did not see because, this. Please tell me. Breaking because, news. Uh, well, he just said you know he was he did this press conference to announce a few things, including that gyms are going to open, are going to be allowed to open under certain circumstances. Well, know, that would demand. mean that theaters are probably in the next wave of that. I hope. Well, someone asked, like, so why? Basically, asked. I'm surprised that this level of pettiness emerged at a, at a professional press conference. But, but it was, it was like a question. Griffin I Newman to know, in someone. a newsy cap asking the question. Say, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> hey, uh, They wanted to know why. They basically asked why gyms and not movie theaters. And Cuomo said, not unfairly, but certainly wounds me as like an out of shape movie person. <laughs> but he's like, he's like, you know, these are all kind of relative. Like we're trying to go in order of what's most essential. And we think that for New Yorkers, gyms are more essential than movie theaters. And, I, just, and I just flip my desk that I'm yeah. recording on right now. <laughs> we're rioting. And, and like, I get what he's saying. He's saying he's he's considering it less risk, although I don't really I didn't really buy his logic on that. I mean, I mean, gyms seem gross shit. and sweaty and and worse than movie theaters in my mind. But yeah, I think he, he's really hung up on the like you're in city in one room for two hours with other people, although that's a real crapshoot. You can go at 9 a.m. and maybe be with nobody. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know. I've been. Yeah, I don't think that's what I would. That's do. what I think when I'm worried about crowds. Like I think about all the because I am off on Friday. So I go see movies that like often the first show of the day or like the second show of the day at oh. like an AMC. And I'm like, I don't have to worry about crowds at like the <laughs> afternoon show of my bodyguard's wife or whatever the fuck it was <laughs> like it's not an issue but yeah. uh i understand why it is for the for yeah the big no, black I, I really like how cautious new york is being yeah. i just selfishly want them to also keep gyms closed out of spite oh for sure also i just want cuomo to say uh i, I received a call from mr nolan and we are opening <laughs> theaters on september 4th i just want i want to hear that <laughs> But AMC has said its safe and clean protocols were developed under close cooperation with public health and safety experts. Uh, one thing that I noticed while reading through all the stuff they're doing is that there are no more refills on drinks, which <laughs> is kind of like they use the coronavirus as an excuse. I mean, of course, we had to get rid of the soda machines. I understand that, like 100%. But instead of, like, you know, using the ones behind... I mean, I understand, like, a workflow issue probably to get people fucking refills all night and day. Yeah. But uh, no more refills, presumably for safety reasons. Um, uh, what else? Uh, well, everyone's making fun of them because, like, well, there's a strict no cell phone policy at AMC, and <laughs> people use that shit all the time. So uh, they have a strict mask enforcement. Um, I don't know. They're trying to get people back to theaters is the idea. Approximately 300 additional AMC locations are expected to open during the following two weeks after this first wave, which is how many? 
uh, 100 locations uh, across the country. So I guess look it up on AMC's website if it's opening near you. All I know is Disney appears to be full throttle on releasing the new Mutants on August 28th. Yes! So that's it's so amazing to me to think about. It's 11 days from now. Uh, the new Mutants is supposed to come out and Tenet's a, a few days after that. And yeah, New York is in no place for that yet. I, I'm sure the drive-ins will start playing that shit and it'll be really hard to get tickets for a drive-in for a few weeks. Um, is my prediction because if Tenet opens it you know it's it's first of all it's going to be pirated immediately which makes me annoyed because I will be tempted to watch it um I don't know I just want to see Tenet when it opens so this news is that movie theaters are starting to open on August 20th check your local listings for that type of information and start arranging for your car rental now if you live in New York City to drive upstate no kidding yeah, and get a COVID test and be smart, all that, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Stakeland filmmaker Jim Mickle is now directing a adaptation of Stephen King's From a Buick 8, a project that has been uh, tossed around for years and years and years. Uh, 2002 novel. So William Brent Bell was more recently attached. None of those uh, recent adaptations ever came to fruition. Once it was like George A. Romero and Toby Hooper were attached. Uh, so now it's Thomas Jane that's like bought it and is like spearheading an attempt to get it done. Uh, his, him and his producer, Courtney Lauren Penn, have joined forces with Renegade Entertainment. Or actually, that's their company they're starting. And uh, he revealed, uh, Tom Jane revealed an episode of the podcast, The King's Cast, I believe with the former guest in front of the show, Scott Wampler. Um, Jim Mickle has signed on to direct. Jim Mickle directed We Are What We Are, good horror movie. Cold in July, a great not horror movie, but... A thriller. Did you ever see that movie? I did not. I think I want to say that's the one that has uh, Dexter, whatever that guy's yeah, name is. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. It's a good like western. Um, From a Buick Eight centers around the rural town of Statler, PA, where the state police have kept a mysterious 1951 Buick Roadmaster in the shed behind the barracks for over 20 years. When the town is plagued by strange and supernatural events, it turns out the Buick isn't what it seems. Classic King car shit. Sounds great. Um, Blumhouse. You know, we have shit-talked, and, well, I didn't mean to shit-talk. I've reviewed every single one of the Blumhouse, Hulu, Into the Dark, made-for-TV quality horror movies. They do they do one a month. They're very loosely tied to some holiday. Uh, they're doing a similar thing that I guess is not as tied to any holiday or anything, but they're doing uh, something called Welcome to the Blumhouse on Amazon, and it's eight original movies over the course of a year. So they're doing four at a time, I guess. So this poster says four unsettling films under one roof. The films are called Nocturne, Black Box, Evil Eye, and The Lie. They do look kind of like the same aesthetic quality as the Hulu Into the Darks, which does not bode well. But I don't really want to waste time reading the descriptions of all four of these movies. So if you're interested in Welcome to the <laughs> Blumhouse, check uh, Amazon Prime Video. They're there. Uh, double features start October 6th with The Lie and Black Box, and then the October 13th is Evil Eye and Nocturne. All the information's on Amazon Prime Video, as well as Bloody Disgusting. This news is wild. Uh, horror, it is horror. I was going to say it's not horror news, but it is. This is Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead news. This movie has been in talks for a long time. It is a zombie movie. I believe it's like a zombie movie that takes place during like a heist in Vegas or something. It has a really fun premise. Um, Chris D'Elia was in it and they shot the whole movie already. The principal photography wrapped late last year and it was already in post during the, when the pandemic hit, uh, Chris D'Elia is being replaced 
by Tignataro in the movie. Um, so the movie will now undergo a quick round of reshoots to incorporate Tignataro's role. Due to actors being already dispersed post-filming and due to pandemic restrictions, the incorporation will be a combination of techniques from actually reshooting scenes opposite an acting partner to using green screen and CG tech to blend her in. <laughs> so Army of the Dead takes place after a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, settling on a group of mercenaries who take the ultimate gamble, venturing into the quarantine zone to pull off the greatest heist ever attempted. I love this premise so much, and I think it's hilarious they're going to, like, scissor around this movie to cut out Crystalia and insert uh, a much better comedian, Tignataro, <laughs> as comic relief. I am all about it. I just think it sounds like it's going to be a hat, you know, a kind of an awkward hack job. Which, uh, God, poor Zack Snyder. All of his movies need to get, like, you know, uh, change a lot in post, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I feel like his movies, if any, maybe this one will be less, uh, look less, like, wholly cartoony. But his movies always have that, like, look to them where you feel like the actors could have been on completely different corners of the globe. That's when true, shooting it. yeah. It's not exactly verisimilitude that he's shooting for, so I'm hoping that it'll, it'll be seamless in that way. <laughs> right on. This is a Netflix movie, um, so good on Netflix. I mean, I don't know what to say here other than, like, they're getting... Uh, Chris D'Elia, I don't know if listeners of this podcast know, he's a comedian who was, uh, sexual misconduct allegations were brought up against him. He was, like, hooking up with really young fans and, like, uh, grooming young girls. Really gross stuff. So he will not be in movies anymore, probably. <laughs> um, I think all of his Netflix specials got canceled and stuff, too. Um, and this is interesting. Fear Street, which I mentioned, I think, a week or two ago when we were talking, for, we were talking about R.L. Stein for some reason. But I knew that the director of Honeymoon, this great indie horror movie, uh, Lee Janiak, was directing three movies because they're, uh, it was a Fear Street trilogy uh, b uh, based on R.L. Stein books. Not a Goosebumps series, his other series called Fear Street. So basically what happened was, I think the Paramount guy or something, basically this project got put in turnaround and they said it was not going to be three movies anymore, it was going to be one but that is not true anymore because now Netflix acquired it. So it will be three movies and it's Fear Street 1, Fear Street 2, and Fear Street 3. Fear Street 1 is set in 1994. Fear Street 2 is set in 1978. Fear Street 3 is set in 1666. Wow. Uh, so this shit is ambitious. <laughs> um, <laughs> apparently the movies are already filmed and the cast includes Gillian Jacobs and a bunch of, I'm assuming, kids who I don't know. Um, but in 1989, three years before Goosebumps came onto the scene and made him a household name, R.L. Stein launched the lesser-known series of books, Fear Street. Taking place in the fictional city of Shadyside, Ohio, the teen-oriented Fear Street books pit teenagers up against adversaries both human and paranormal. A total of 52 stories comprise the original line. Uh, the art used for this, I don't know if this was a, the selection on purpose. They used the prom queen, the sleepwalker, and cheerleaders, the first evil. I don't know if those are the three being adapted. It doesn't look like it. But... Cool, exciting, R.L. Stein, love the guy. He has really funny tweets. Check him out. Um, let's jump right into The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Now, this movie's conception is about everything you'd expect it to be, in that The Exorcist 1 was this massive, massive hit. So it had this really, sh uh, you know, slow rollout. Of I have to pause and get my door. I'll be right back. <laughs> And we're back. All right. So as I was saying, 
the it's it's conception is exactly what you'd think wb had a hit on its hands the movie had a very slow rollout like it was in big cities and like it had this reputation of it was selling out people were lining up down the street and people were going to see it again and again because of how scary it was and then the exorcist actually didn't get a wide release until like i think the next year like in november and then um and when by that time they were advertising it like the version that uh, the uncensored version, because what was happening is the movie was so scary that like local theaters or whatever would take it upon themselves to like edit it themselves and cut out certain sequences. So there was like this growing problem of like theaters going rogue and like cutting this movie up. So WB knew this. And then when they put it out wide, they like flooded the zone with all these advertisers saying like, this is, this is the WB sanctioned version that has all the actual scenes in it that some people haven't seen yet. So they made a fuck ton of money by putting out that movie wide. It was like this huge hit. Uh, it was 1973. Remember probably 74 by the time this other release happened and like notable that this is before, like right before jaws, right before star Wars, these movies that we know as like the record setting blockbusters that changed how people go to movies. So, Naturally, the powers that be at WB wanted a sequel. And their first idea was conceived to spend uh, as little money as possible. It was conceived as a low-budget affair. And what they essentially wanted to do with the sequel, they called it on the commentary, a clip show. They wanted to do a clip show of footage that was excised from the first movie because they had so much footage of the girl and makeup and all this crazy, scary stuff that I was on the cutting room floor. So they, they had the idea, what Sanchi wanted to do with the sequel was to redo the first movie, have the central figure, an investigative priest, interview everyone involved with the exorcism, and then just fade out to unused footage and unused angles from the first film. A low-budget <laughs> rehash, about $3 million of The Exorcist. A rather cynical approach to movie making, I'll admit, but that <laughs> was the start. <laughs> so basically they wanted to do Trail of the Pink Panther... But for a movie that was very recent and no one in the cast had died. Yes. They wanted to do uh, what you do on season 11 of Friends uh, in between, like, when you run out of new episodes before Sweeps Week. And you're like, uh, play the clip show where they, where the duck and the monkey are in it or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's very, it was very cheap and low budget and shitty. And, and uh, the reception of that idea wasn't good. And uh, playwright William Goodhart was then commissioned to write the screenplay, which he titled The Heretic. And this is where the movie kind of goes off the rails, is that it's based on the theories of a French Jesuit priest named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit paleontologist archaeologist who had inspired the character of Father Marin in Blatty's novel. It's based on that guy's beliefs. And the screenplay took a more metaphysical and intellectual approach compared with the original film. This movie is about the battle between good and evil centering on the human consciousness, the specific idea within the framework of Catholic theology that human consciousness could be brought together as one through technology, although this would also result in a conflict between those who saw good and evil. There's this whole idea in this movie about the connection of minds and like the idea of like uh, human evolution evolving to another level where humans would connect with this one giant hive mind. Um, and it's this idea that I honestly didn't pick up on until like the second commentary I watched on it <laughs> because this movie doesn't really give you anything. And before, you know what, I'm getting already too into the development and stuff. Let's just talk about our reactions to watching The Exorcist to The Heretic, both of us for the first time, right after watching the original. What did you know about it? What did you take from it? Just, just tell me. 
here's what I know knew about this movie going into it. I knew it was considered a very bad sequel and considered perhaps one of the worst movies ever made. Um, so you can imagine with that reputation preceding it that it wouldn't be that hard for the movie to surpass it. And I would say it did in the sense that at no point, even at the most ridiculous points of this movie, did I say, dear God, this is one of the worst things I've ever seen. I don't even think this is as bad as most of the Jaws sequels. For like, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's directed by John Borman. And if people don't yeah. know who that is... Uh, he made... I actually just uh, coincidentally a couple weeks ago watched Excalibur for the first time. And it's, I didn't even think it was that great, but it's like very cool looking and like a pretty, you know, it's pretty like rad. It's maybe yeah, more than- <laughs> that's, his movies are ambitious and kind of yeah. strange. And like another, what is he most famous for? It was probably that and um, Zardoz. Oh. Or most famously Point Blake, which is a great, very early kind of, not exploit, not, uh, not a, it's kind of an experimental thriller, I would say, uh, in terms of how it used its techniques. But he's most famous for Deliverance. Like, he had just yeah, won no awards way. for Deliverance at this time, I think. Yeah. I think was, that year. Not, this was not long. Deliverance came out around the same time as The Exorcist. And yeah, this 72. Was, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting movie to look at in certain parts. Um, there's like It's, like, not poorly shot. It's not incompetent. I, it's just interesting to me because I feel like that the... I don't know if it's just that the bar for competence has slipped in, in different directions over the years... Or I feel like there's certainly there's always like the Ed Wood movies or whatever when people talk about the worst movies ever made that are like sheer, you know, kind of in, in fact, kind of charming and competence. But this is not a movie where I would say, oh, man, the editing was terrible. Oh, the cinematography was was hideous. Oh, the it, it's, it's completely incoherent. It doesn't really do what it sets out to do. And it's not really very successful. And it's certainly not very scary. But I'm surprised that it got a reputation as one of the worst movies ever made off of off of this, like, you know, admittedly not super compelling, but also not, you know, not outright incompetent movie. It does, like, fully have a climax that is mostly people taking an Amtrak to, <laughs> to back to a location from the first movie. It reminded uh, me so much of the <laughs> denouement of uh, Dr. Sleep. <laughs> which is like they up oh, we gotta head back to the the source of the original movie that everyone it, knows like it'd be like if dr sleep did that but preceded it with like 15 minutes of him in the of car. like the travel yeah right <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah him, yeah. him pit pumping the gas and dude and i'm gonna i'm gonna blow stuff. your mind with what the director intended with that travel sequence because there's like mystical shit happening there's well yeah exactly it's, it's, <laughs> So obviously it's not a very successful movie because I didn't no. notice any mystical stuff happening. But at the same time, I had a sort of, I mean, it was, neither you know, it's did general down. audiences, my friend. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, you know, I was not appalled by it. I, I thought there were some cool ideas in it, but from the sound of it, there's a lot of cool ideas that I probably didn't even notice because it sounds like they were in some stage of development of the movie, but didn't make it in. How, you, so you had never seen this before either? No, I had never seen it. I think I'd seen parts of it, but I just had no memory of seeing this movie because I had heard it was so bad. And I always heard three was good. So I just always skipped two and went to three because there's really no continuity there, uh, especially when three comes into play. There's some, there's there's in, there's like implied continuity in this one between The Exorcist, but it also doesn't really explain anything well. Like this movie just has Reagan living with Sharon as her caretaker and has zero explanation as to where her mother is. 
uh, and well, the answer is they, they say she's on a shoot, but right? It's, but like it's it's, 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 it's like a line, it's like a throwaway yeah. line, yeah. and like the reason is because like she was written into the script and Ellen Burstyn couldn't do it, and like everything about this movie is like that. Like the 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 priest character was actually two characters in the old version, which was like this priest Lamont, and then you know who it was? It was this script was originally uh, Columbo Kinderman original. <laughs> the whole thing was premised on him being the investigator, investigating still the death of the director, and then meeting up with Lamont, and then like the, they kind of shared a role that that is now uh, all Lamont. You know, and something that I think is actually pretty interesting about this movie, I actually like the. I mean, maybe it's because I have no real, as discussed last week, no real like super attachment to The Exorcist, so it's not something that I cherish. I can see if you like love The Exorcist in, the, in 1973, going into this movie would be like the disappointment of all time. But because I don't have a strong attachment to The Exorcist, what they do kind of retain from the original, some of it I think is kind of cool. I li- really like the idea of following how this affects Reagan later in her life when she's a teenage girl. Totally. And I think Linda, Linda Blair is sort of interesting in the movie. I don't think she's probably getting, I get the sense that she was maybe a little underdirected by Borman, but like I found her character empathetic. And it's just like in the first movie, what I was most interested in was uh, Reagan and her mother. I was also most interested in Reagan in this movie. The priest character, though, it's not that I have some jonesing to see a detective character from the previous movie or some more connection to the previous movie, but the um, the, the priest character in this movie is just a total loss of like. He a... <laughs> is, he's, I don't know how to describe it. I, there's, I, not incoherent, but he's just a bad protagonist in that he has. The, the commentary, one of the guys keeps bringing up how he always just has communication problems throughout the movie. And he's always miscommunicating with people. Like, there's that scene where he goes to Africa to try to find Kokumo and they bring him a prostitute. Like, there's just, like, so many scenes that are just like, look how inept this guy is. And yeah. I don't know what the point was other than to maybe show he's susceptible to the demon that eventually takes over him later. Which yeah. I don't even know if you know happens because it yeah. took the fucking commentary to tell me that I, that's what was happening. I picked up on that, but I also was watching it going, this does not, you know, wait, actually, maybe I didn't pick up on that. I guess I thought it was like the demon was tempting him by appearing as Reagan. And that's not even, so that's that's pretty late in the movie, but that, I assume people are not super concerned about spoilers. Um, yeah. I didn't I didn't feel like that was, you know, that I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. The movie has failed to develop completely. Like, oh, is he, does he, is he nursing some kind of unsavory attraction to this like 16 year old girl, 17 year old girl, how old she's supposed to be. Right. And, and that really comes to a head in the final scene later when like there, there's that seduction and actually this is cut out of the TV version, but like he goes into bed with her. Yeah. Yeah. And the version I saw, he goes into bed with her yes. and starts like, and starts necking with, with, yes. with demon vegan, not the real Which one. like implies this whole other thing that I hadn't even thought about, which is so dumb, of course, so obvious. But in the second commentary, I think this is a guy named Mike White of the Projection Booth podcast, not oh. Mike White of Orange County and Chuck and Buck and whatnot. <laughs> but he brought up the idea of like, watch this movie as like, you know, you're looking back at Reagan who, say she experienced a trauma, uh, re- replaced demon possession with like sexual abuse. And, like, this is a movie about dealing with the repercussions of, like, that abuse. And, like, that is an interesting theory. Like, does, rem- oh, does, yeah. does Reagan remember what happened to her in her bedroom with Burke, with Father Marin? Like, if you think about, like, it's so easy to draw the parallels between this movie's uh, talking about just trauma in general. Especially when you consider that John Borman, like, fucking hated The Exorcist. And <laughs> di- was asked to direct it and didn't want to. He... What did he say about it? He said he's like, as a father of daughters, 
he just thought he thought it was a book and a movie about torturing a child and he found it abhorrent and he turned it down. So like when you consider all those things, I don't know, it's hard. It colors the perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, like, that's an actually really interesting idea to me is hiring someone who doesn't particularly have an affinity, probably because I don't have a particular affinity for the movie yeah. to, to make the sequel, but the, it does kind of feel like it drifts off into the, it's, it's like a, like a lot, I feel like a lot of horror sequels we've talked about on the show, like there's a sort of half weird fealty to the original in that you're like spending a lot of this time, like the whole hook of this movie is what well, we're investigating, whether Father Marin was a uh, was committing hearsay by saying this happened and it's kind of like who gives a shit he's dead and like, yeah. <laughs> like why are we investigating this four years later and at the same time he's also going off in an interesting weird direction with the stuff with reagan and also a fuck ton of locusts for some reason so many locusts the uh, the commentary guy he's like i went through like he went through all the production notes there's so much funny stuff in it but like he's like there's pages and pages of like a minutia of ordering locusts and how it worked and how they had a whole budget for real locusts and a whole budget for fake locusts that they called Larry's. Uh, <laughs> so like all the scenes with like the giant flying bunch of locusts that are just flying in people's faces and flying around. Those are all fake things called Larry's. So like the Larry's were just putting pressurized air guns and like shot around. Um, but I want to get back to the idea of Borman hating the exorcist because I think this movie, which I think the most modern comparison I could do is to say The Exorcist 2 is very, like, Last Jedi in terms of, like, taking what came before it and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, that's not what happened. Like, that movie, like, the, that movie's perspective, like, I know we, we talked about how Friedkin says, you know, people take what they want to it and they can walk away saying it's a it's a empowering movie or a scary movie with a horrible worldview. Whereas this movie's entire thing, like, according to John Borman, is this movie isn't about evil, it's about goodness. And he found that appealing. And he said, I should have known that evil sells better than goodness. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. But um, he, it's really interesting that because it was a sequel to a film that made so much money, he knew that he'd have a large budget and carte blanche and that he could make a film with challenging notions and ideas and visual effects. And this is, this movie is cited in many, like, uh, essays and blogs and uh, just like uh, books I've read as like the point where studios decided like directors could not have control anymore. <laughs> like this movie was such a fiasco for the studio that um, audiences opening weekend who, were, who saw this movie were so angry. They were, they were, it's, it's described as rioting. People were throwing stuff at the screen um, so much so that Borman flew back from the UK to Burbank to re-edit it like days after its release. And then they tried, they recut new prints of it and replaced all the old ones. Like <laughs> they, and even then the new version didn't really make anything better. It just no. was shorter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'd have more shows per day of the movie. Everybody. Yeah. Had. Well, but, it's, 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 it's such an interesting uh, inflection point because it's coming on the heels of movies like the Godfather and exorcist and jaws where they don't have that much in common, the three of them. Other than the auteur thing, just, I guess, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they were just, like, massive, massive hits, where suddenly, you know, they're, like, almost unprecedented hits, especially for their genres, where suddenly, like, if you're doing a sequel, just doing, like, a... Not that this was a cheapy follow-up, but, like, I feel like there's a lot more leeway in the 60s and early 70s about, like, even the idea of a sequel. Would, would anyone even know the sequel was out? You know, it's it's kind of just a cash-in thing. And obviously sequels are still are that, but it's sort of... This is right in the midpoint where 
they, you know, sequels start, people start kind of demanding things out of sequels. And this is, came out the same, this came out like a month after Star Wars, which is yes. wild to me. It, it's uh, wild because it still managed to make a, like, it made money, even though it's not a, it's regarded as one of the worst movies ever because it was so front loaded and people were so excited and, yeah, it, and, yeah. and Warner Brothers went wide with it, uh, right away without letting any bad word get out like it did make money it was um, well it was yeah. one of the widest releases ever at the time and one of the uh one of the biggest opening weekends at the time and i believe i read somewhere it was warner brothers most expensive movie ever to that point it i think that's probably true it definitely went Thanks. over budget i know that um <laughs> this is also the time when sorcerer <laughs> uh Friedkin's sorcerer was like getting trounced in theaters at the same time um it's so fascinating. I, I, before we get into any more of it, like I definitely want to talk about the fucking theology that it's based on, and like the entire thing that it just goes over everybody's heads. But uh, to your point of like what did audiences expect from this, because audiences were so disappointed. There's a two minute trailer for this movie that is just set to the Ennio Morricone score, like the end credit song, which is great and used in other things. In fact, the opening credit song today, I didn't mention it. Uh, the opening theme to our podcast today was Reagan's theme from this movie by Ennio Morricone. And that is sampled by Tarantino in The Hateful Eight, even though I think Tarantino still falsely claims that Morricone recorded new versions of it. Maybe he literally recorded a new version of it, but it is <laughs> Reagan's theme from The Heretic. So if you recognize funny. it... That's yeah. I, I, I thought I recognized it. I was like, oh, this sounds so much like his score for Hateful Eight, and I guess that answers that. <laughs> yes, it literally is. Uh, the, the commentator, this is a recent commentary, because the commentator brought it up as well. Um, before we get too much into it, though, I just kind of want to walk through... I want you to lead the plot des description because I want to <laughs> fill in the gaps with what happens. Because... This, is like a, this is like therapy. What do you think happened? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I would love to do this like a, let's synchronize our brains uh, oh, with, with the flashing light thing. Me. Another thing I always want to say for a movie that's like the last one's about like a demon possessing a, a girl and it's played with such realism that I had no problems with suspension of disbelief. And then this movie comes in <laughs> with its brain synchronizer device that yeah. as the commentator puts exactly what I was thinking like if this thing existed to be on the cover of Time magazine it yeah. would be like a huge revelation in the world and instead it's just like oh yeah it's a premise in a, an exorcist sequel they it's have just, it like lying around a hospital like, yeah they uh, like bring it to second. a Times Square motel to use like it's like what the <laughs> fuck is happening um it's, it's easy yeah. enough for her. she just leaves with it at one point and is like sorry I took this, the brain synchronizer <laughs> Yeah, all right. Uh, so t let's walk through yeah. this movie. Opening scene, what do you think happens? Do so you remember? It's, it starts right with Lamont, and I'm going to be referring to Wikipedia during this to jog my memory of this movie I watched last night. Dude, yeah, <laughs> I know. It is, a, it is a whole thing. Yeah, so Lamont, the, the priest who's played by, uh, what's his face? Burton. Uh, Richard Burton is in is, is like trying to investigate uh, or exercise i guess um a, a girl in a foreign country the exorcism goes wrong and the girl catches on fire yes <laughs> okay uh, i thought it was like i the the synopsis doesn't say that it's like a you know devil power is doing that that's kind of what i assume but again this might be the first of many instances where i was assuming something incorrectly about the movie no no you're uh, right he uh He's a, he's subsequently taken and, and put on the case of Father Marin, who is, uh, obviously was killed in The Exorcist, as we saw uh, earlier, uh, because Marin's been posthumously charged with heresy because of he, he talking about, uh, you know, wanting to t wanting to bring Satan back into the conversation. Uh, yes. So he to 
to further this, he goes to see Regan, uh, who is now, you know, the same amount of time that's passed between movies, I think. She's about five years older. She's like a 17-year-old girl with her guardian, Sharon, in New York, while her mom is off still doing act, doing the acting. Um, and she also, it's, it's, I found it confusingly presented. She's at a psychiatric institute, but I, uh, there along, uh, like, often... Uh, I'm not sure what she's supposed to have done. They, they make reference to her being in school. We don't really see her in school. Never see her in correct. school, correct. Uh, she seems to be at this institute all the time. Yes. Um, but not really getting anywhere. Like her doctor, who is played by uh, Louise Fletcher, right? From One Louise Three. Fletcher, for who had just won an Oscar right, <laughs> right before yeah. doing this. There's talent in this movie. Yes. Um, she's the doctor who's sort of pressing Regan to reconsider her traumatic experience. Regan is sort of brushing it off and saying, you know, I, so I had these bad dreams and I was sick and now I feel better. And she's kind of not really, you know, talking about the demon angle of things. Uh, so the, the priest Lamont goes there and, and wants to talk to her. Uh, the doctor, Louise Fletcher wants to keep her sort of protected, but at the same time was trying to push her to really re-examine her memories. Um, and since you think she's repressing stuff about the exorcism, which we know as people who have seen the first movie that she clearly is because she was clearly possessed by yes, a Yes, and I think at the, in this cut of the movie, we already see her dreaming about things. And so we yeah. know that when the therapist asks her, are you dreaming about it? And she says, no, we know that she's lying. Yes. Which in a different cut, the, the, the 40, it's a 20 minute shorter version that was, it's called the international version for all intents and purposes. It was the version that was released a month after the domestic debut that was then hastily re-edited. This is the hasty re-edit that was then put out everywhere else. <laughs> That's um, what they should call it, the hasty re-edit. The hasty re-edit, uh, which includes, because um, I'm assuming people were confused by everything about this movie. So the movie opens with like a new bit of score or like a re rehashed bit of score. And there's a prologue that includes some sequences from the original movie and also like freeze frame sitcom, like TV sitcom esque freeze frames of each character with some narration above, like explaining uh, what they're doing. I kind of wish yeah. I had seen that, not because it sounds good, but just no, because cause it's helpful. I know. Yeah. Like it really did help. Like the re-edit is a little better, I think. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> But a few things I want to mention here. Everything you've said is right so far. Um, uh, uh, Louise Fletcher, I wrote down in my notes right away that she looks so much like Ellen Burstyn. It's ama it like is distracting yeah, to me. Con it's confusingly similar, yeah. yeah. And and I thought I was nuts, but then in the commentary, uh, the guy said he talked to Ellen Burstyn, and he said that she just thought it was hilarious because she's constantly getting mixed up with Louise Fletcher, so much so that people are coming up to her congratulating her for her Oscar on uh, <laughs> One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest all the time. So I thought that was really funny. But it's not, I mean, it, it was just, it's just kind of a fluke that she looks like Ellen Burstyn. There's no reason behind that. Um, anyway, just to read more into the opening scene, because this is something I didn't get until, I guess, the commentary. So in that scene with the exorcism in the opening scene, we're supposed to get that this girl is a healer. The girl in need is held by six women as the exorcism begins, and the girl speaks and says, why me? I heal the sick. And then suddenly she breaks loose and begins to overthrow rows of candles, which cartwheel across the room, and Lamont stares in horror as the girl like sets herself on fire. And this sequence, I want to point out, this is the first moment that I was visually impressed with this movie, because this movie has a ton of like visual effects, and it was at the time when like things just started to become more like special effecty and computery, and this movie does everything in camera still, and it definitely is like because they had an old you know an old fashioned director with an old fashioned crew doing it. So like that scene where the girl is in 
is on fire is really like done through ghost glass. And so is every scene with them in like the therapy room that it's like it juxtaposes against the Georgetown room. That stuff is all shot on something called ghost glass, which I had never heard of. Had you ever heard of it? No, no. Okay, so let me read what Ghost Glass is. It's a silent film process where two different scenes are filmed on two different uh, stages, reflected into this Ghost Glass, and then filmed on the camera. There's no optical tricks. Uh, so basically, um, uh, there these two like uh, uh, sets are reflected into each other, and the camera then records that image. So there's no effects at all. It's all about how you light it, and it's through like mirrors and refractions and stuff like that. That's so. That's very cool. And like, there's a lot in the movie. There's a lot of cool stuff in the movie with reflected images yes. and mirrored images and stuff like that. And that's fascinating. That's wow. I had no idea. Yeah. So like all that stuff. Like that's why I think the commentary made me appreciate the movie a little more because I'm like, wow. I mean, I always, I, I even when I didn't like it, I was like, the visuals are interesting, and I don't know how they did that. So now I know how they did that, and it, it's <laughs> it's truly something so archaic that it just would never be used today unless like a Tarantino or a Nolan decided to dust it off and like try to do it. Um, okay. So that's important in that scene that she's a healer. Cause that is something that is a theme of this movie that I didn't catch at all. Um, so we talked about, you talked about Lamont talking to the Cardinal, uh, Marin believing that the power of basically, uh, Marin's writings have been impounded. Marin believed that the power of evil threatened to overthrow the power of God. And has even believed that he may have been, been a satanist because people yes. you know people don't want to hear that type of shit so because of this lamont will go and trace the facts concerning the exorcism in washington so yeah then we meet reagan who's now 17 and now gene tuscan who is louise fletcher that was supposed to be chris sarandon and then it was supposed to be christopher walken it was a man it was eugene it was eugene tuscan uh eventually it 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 fell to louise fletcher uh, fletcher and she's great in the role um uh, even though it's four years later, Reagan is troubled by dreams. Uh, yeah, now we're introduced to the synchronizer, the scientific instrument used in the technique of synchronized hypnosis. It allows... Yes. yes this is like the whole fucking crux of the movie. It's really crazy. <laughs> it allows both patient and doctor to mind lock at the same wavelength while in a trance. During Dr. Tuscan's meeting with Father Lamont, she tells him about Reagan's problems. She believes that Reagan suffered a severe trauma and that the exorcism made the problem worse. She also feels that Reagan is repressing guilt over the three people that died during the course of the exorcism, Marin, Karis, and Burke Dennings. This is what she believes to be the cause of her dreams. The next day, the three of them take part in a synchronizer session. And this is where the ghost glass is used to the best effect, where it's like, you see... It's supposed to be fucking Reagan uh, back in her room at Georgetown. But because Ray, uh, Linda Blair refused to do makeup this time around, she refused <laughs> to like be sit in the chair and be made up to look horrifying. Uh, they have stand-ins for her. There are two stand-ins for her. One of them, they say, looks like her, and one of them does not at all. And the one that did look like her was a terrible actress. So the one that used the most is the one that looks nothing like her. And in my mind, it looks like Natasha Lyonne. And it's really oh, distracting. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But basically, they, they do this hypnosis where Reagan, I think, and Dr. Tuscan are hypnotized, and slowly their minds become one. And then something goes wrong, causing Dr. Tuscan's heart to, like, start beating really fast or something. And then Reagan comes out of the trance, but Dr. Tuscan does not. So then Father Lamont is brought in <laughs> to take the place of Reagan, and then he goes into Dr. Tuscan's mind to link and become one. And then he sees what she sees. And that's when we see, like, scary Reagan grabbing onto Dr. Tur uh, Tuscan's heart. Right. And like, there's an actual shot of like, you know, like an actual beating heart being grabbed. 
and we see Father Marin's face like superimposed over Tuscan's face. And this scene is just like hypnotic and incredible the way they use that ghost glass. And if I hadn't listened to it, I would have just been flabbergasted. At, I don't know how they did this. I would have just assumed they, you know, double, double exposed it. And yeah. that would have been the easy way to do it, but they didn't. They did it this really hard way. Um, so he sees what she sees. The lamp through Lamont's eyes begins to disappear. It is now Reagan's Georgetown bedroom. Uh, he then becomes a witness to Father Marin's death. As the vision continues, Marin dies, and Tuscan is brought out of the trance. Because of Lamont's uh, suggestion during her trance, Dr. Tuscan does not remember what happened. Basically, Reagan goes, hey, tell her not to remember what happened. And he says, don't remember what happened. And then she comes out of it, and she's like, I do not remember what happened. <laughs> it's pretty convenient. <laughs> Um, and then what happens? The session ends. Reagan leaves the office while Dr. Lamont discusses what happened with Dr. Tuscan. Outside, Reagan draws a picture for Lamont while waiting, and Dr. Tuscan's keeping a watchful eye on her, satisfied that she's apparently unaffected by the session. After they're discussing, Tuscan leaves uh, Lamont to do her rounds. Liz, Dr. Tuscan's secretary, approaches. This is Ned Beatty's wife, and the, the, the commentator makes a really snide remark about how she doesn't really act very much because she's really bad, and that she only got the gig because Ned Beatty has that cameo later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dr. Tuscan's secretary approaches her carrying the drawing. She hands one to Lamont. The drawing is himself, but there are bright red flames coming out of his head and his shoulders. Transfixed by the drawing and some inner revelations, he breaks away from Tuscan. After catching up to her, he stops at a conspicuous door. He follows, uh, Tuscan follows him down some service stairs and they find like a fire, right? And like, yeah, he starts beating a fire with a crutch, which is not helpful in any way, like a wooden crutch. <laughs> uh, and then Tuscan turns away. And, the, uh, and I think they put out the fire. Basically, the fire resembled Reagan's drawing. Yeah. And then that night, oh boy, then we get Reagan's sleep being interrupted. And she begins to sleepwalk in the same footsteps. This is very important. As we see visions of an African landscape unfold. This was all, all first of all, all of this stuff was done on, on, stu on sound stages. Right. They eventually went to, I think, Africa for like second unit stuff. But all the big sequences are sound stages. The house, they had to rebuild the Georgia stairs, all 172 of the stairs, because they were not allowed to film at Georgetown anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so they rebuilt everything. So everything's a sound stage, which I think is amazing, including this African landscape. So we're watching this landscape. It's done on Steadicam, which was a new, which was very new at this time. Only a couple movies had used it, like Bound to Glory and, a, and one, like a, one other uh, before this. So Marin, like, watches horrified as a crowd of people lead a young boy out of a field into a swarm, a swarm of locusts. Echoing the boy's movements, Reagan steps out on her bed and walks out onto her terrace, which is the fucking roof of a building in New York. And funnily enough, it is the WB building in New York, where they have offices, uh, where their publicity office was. And that's why one of these commentators had a script, because he knew someone who worked at that office, and they just had a script from the day that they shot there. So that's how this guy ended up having the script. Um... So a flurry of locusts attacks the boy. Um, and at this point, Reagan is perilously perched at the edge of the balcony, which she actually really did, apparently. Um, and then she wakes up and fights to control her balance, but wins. So this sequence, what is supposed to show is the, de the demon basically was trying to kill Reagan there. And she snapped out of it. Did you get that? Yes. Yeah, basically. Okay. I mean, I don't know if I knew that it was the demon trying to do that, but I knew she was like some some force was compelling her to put herself in danger. Right. And then we cut to, I believe, back to Georgetown, where Sharon is now there meeting with Father Lamont. They go to the house and talk about the exorcism and Father Marin. 
Father Lamont prays for the soul of Marin in Reagan's bedroom in the room where he died. And then we get a second synchronizer session where Reagan and Father Lamont are linked. Through their vision, they are transported back almost 40 years back to Father Marin's first encounter with the demon Pazuzu. We find that this young African boy had special powers, powers that heal. Father Marin believes that this is why the boy became possessed. And there's a bit of dialogue here that's important. Does the great goodness draw evil upon itself? The exorcism of the boy is a success and the demon flees. Lamont speaks, Marin defeated you. Pazuzu replies, no, I could claim Kokumo even now. I'll show you power. Come, fly the teeth of the wind, share my wings. And then suddenly they are transported, flying over an African landscape. Then coming to a mud city, they swoop through its gates and whirl between its ancient buildings, coming to one where a single man stands. With a sudden grimace, he opens his mouth. A screaming leopard leaps out. Reagan and Father Lamont are brought out of their trance. Tuscan ushers Reagan out into the reception area. She turns to Lamont and speaks to him about the trance. He tells her the boy, the demon, the possibility of finding that boy, who is a man now, in the need of helping Reagan. Outside of the office, this is, this is wild. So this, move, this is where... The movie goes into like what it's really about, I think. So then we get the scene where Reagan basically cures an autistic girl who's never spoken before. Yes. And this is where the connections come through that I was too dense to realize the first time, I guess, or the movie's too bad to tell uh, telling it. But this is supposed to be the kind of the connection between Reagan and uh, Kukomo and the oh god, there's a third person that I'm missing that she's connected to. Um. But the point is, she's, she's um, because she's a heal, the girl at the beginning is who I'm talking about. The right, girl who's right. exercised at the beginning. Um, so Reagan doing this to the autistic girl, that is Reagan healing that girl. So Reagan is a healer. So the idea here in this movie is that evil will battle good and will be sought. It will try to battle like the strongest good it can find, so to speak. So like... These people, the healers, like the girl in the opening scene and Pazuzu and apparently Reagan, these healers pose the biggest threats to, oh, excuse me, I dropped my microphone, pose the biggest threats to the demons. So thus the demons want to get rid of these people the most. And that's why they become afflicted by the devil. So this movie kind of like, I was going to say, 100%, 100% Last Jedi style retconning of just saying like, (laughs) Oh no, Reagan was possessed because she's a healer type superhuman based on the theories of this French priest, which means she's evolving into a higher being. That is what like all the congealing of the ideas are. It's like Reagan, the healer, the idea of the French guy's philosophy that these people, that people are not done evolving yet. And that like, these are the, it's almost x many. It's like these people are the next level of evolution and they are being fought hard by these demons who are trying to keep them down and on paper how incredible does that movie sound right (laughs) like did you get any of that from this movie Uh, i mean i sort of did i you know i imagine you pushing up your glasses when you said that (laughs) that's funny (laughs) i pretty much did uh, no i mean i i got the the idea that pazuzu was sort of doing a preemptive strike on um on both reagan and Kokumo, what I did not really glean from watching the movie was the idea that humanity is eventually going to collectively evolve to have psychic abilities and that they were just like early adopters, X-Men style of this power. And that's why he, he that they're, the demons are sort of trying to stomp that out. I just sort of got, oh, okay, they were, they were drawn to these, to these people because they had some kind of healing ability or sort of potential for healing ability. And 
they wanted to put a stop to that. So that kind of comes through the kind of bigger picture stuff about how humanity is going in that direction and we're all going to share a psychic link and all that shit. Uh, that you did, no matter how many brain brain synchronicity devices they brought out, that did not really <laughs> like completely come across or land for me. Uh, though it, I understand it's like it's like a kind of next logical step. That that I, to me that doesn't strike me as like incredibly egregious. In that it's sort of the next step, not maybe not the like logical step because none of this really involves like logic per se. Right. Uh, which is fine. That's not a big vibe that I care about that much um but i could see that while it's not really come across in the movie enough comes across for me to like follow what's going on and if it makes the screenwriter or director whoever happy to say no this is part of a next step in humankind's evolution i think okay well that's not that necessary to understand the movie (laughs) but it's wild that that's supposed to be there that we're supposed to get that from watching the movie right um, from that scene, we go back to the Vatican where Lamont meets with the Cardinal and the Cardinal's like, you're only supposed to be investigating Father Marin, not step into his shoes and pick up all of his crazy research, basically. And then Lamont turns on him and is like, what is our church becoming? A conspiracy against God? Uh, Marin was trying to show us the way to the kingdom of Christ on earth. And that's something deep in our hearts. We have given up hope on what you really believe is that the world is incurably sick, lost. And that is a betrayal of our sacred mission. And in the eyes of the world, what are we? Just social workers and bad ones at that telling people to be nice to each other in the name of Christ. Um, And then in Africa, Lamont reaches the Rock Church. It is as it was shown to him. Uh, So basically he has this vision of Africa, and then he gets on a plane and goes there. He has an amazing travel budget. He hops from New York to Rome to Africa in like... I don't know, a course of 24 hours. Yeah, there's a lot of shots of planes going up and coming down in this movie. (laughs) So he ends up in Africa. Uh, It is as it was shown to him. And there he questions the monk about Father Marin. They tell him about a monk who fell to his death helping Father Marin. And this is something he saw in his vision. So he's like, they're like, oh, we never found the body. And he's like, oh, I can tell you where the body is. I saw it in my vision. So then they go to find the body and, and it's there. And then, then asks how he knows. He tells him of the trance and of a fight with the demon. And then the young. And then basically, this is where the commentator I, I mentioned was saying like this guy's a bad protagonist. He's just like because that's like him stepping in it. Like he shouldn't have said that. He shouldn't have said anything about Pazuzu because now the young monk that acts as a translator stops and stares in disbelief, and they start throwing stones at him, <laughs> and he has to leave. Um, and like his jeep is struck by stones. And this is when. <laughs> In the in the shorter version, they never showed Reagan tap dancing earlier on, so it's it's even more jarring when this cuts to Reagan just tap dancing on stage at what must be a talent show for this I guess, for this group oh, of people. It, it, yeah, I it's, guess I realized I'm not sure if that's her school or or at the psychiatric institute. Well, buddy, which, it's uh, not it's not clear. <laughs> well, the, I the psychiatric institute. Uh, just to step back from it, because I realized I wanted to mention this. Uh, really cool set design, and also yes. fucking insane set design. Because it's like, like a, it's a it's like a honeycomb is how they described it. It's like yeah, a beehive. it's like a honeycomb of glass rooms where all the patients can see each other. Yes, that's <laughs> the idea. So they bizarre. they said you're supposed to be able to see each other, but everybody is soundproof and you can't hear. But it's yeah. like it's still an <laughs> so invasion that, of that privacy. Is, <laughs> yeah. um, She's she also. The number she's doing uh, in terms of costumes and moves is a little bit, it, it kind of previsions the musical number uh, that the Muppets perform and the Muppets take Manhattan. So I don't know if that was an influence on Jim Henson and Frank. Oh my God, I hope so. That's so. what I thought watching that. Boy, she's doing the number from that appeared later in Muppets Take Manhattan. So while she's doing that, Lamont is dodging a downpour of stones. Um, but then 
uh, Reagan's pain subsides. Like she like basically falls off stage in pain when this is happening. Like there's a site, the psychic link is happening right then. So there, uh, so then she's basically, uh, put under sedation by Dr. Tuscan during Lamont's venture in Africa. He comes across a mission center there. Lamont asks the aid of a nun, how to find the city, in which Kokomo lives. He's introduced to, uh, ecumenical Edwards played by Ned yes. Beatty. So that's what they call him. That's, that's his nickname. That's what they call him. They, they, the movie posits it. The commentator also calls him that. Uh, Lamont offers no clue that he's a priest. Edwards looks him over shrewdly and agrees to bring him to the city in question. Once there, Lamont weaves through the narrow streets. Exhausted, he wanders aimlessly, searching but without avail. In frustration, he calls out and reaches Reagan via mind link without any sort of machine. So now this movie just kind of goes into this realm of like anytime there's flashing lights on screen there's going to be a psychic link connection. I don't know if you caught on to that, but it's very blatant once you notice it. I did not. That's, uh, that makes sense, I it's, guess. It's all over the place, including in the scene where he's frustrated and wandering aimlessly. He just moves his head back and forth, and his head is covering the sun. So even that is making it uh, a strobe light effect. Oh. Uh, so the mind link is touched. Uh, suddenly, he is walking down this long stone corridor. Uh, Lamont stops at the end and confronts a middle-aged black man sitting on a low throne in a fucking locust outfit. His face is painted to resemble a flying insect. He has two antennae protruding from his headdress. Between him and this figure is a pool of water filled with up-pointed nails. Lamont asks him how to help Reagan, but Kokomo asks which one. Lamont is confused. Which one would you help? The one possessed by Pazuzu or the one held by Father Marin? Pazuzu has brushed you with his wings. You called on Pazuzu to reach me. You have lost faith in your god. You do not believe. Lamont, uh, Lamont rejects Kokomo's statements. He claims that he does believe. Kokomo tells him that if it's true, he must prove it. He must walk across these nails. Trembling with terror, he moves onto the nails, but is impaled. Sending his nails, uh, the nails thrashing deep into his foot and coming out the top, he screams and falls face down. But then when he falls face down, it becomes the entrance hall of a modern building. And he looks up, and it's the same guy. It's James Earl Jones, but he's like a normal guy in a lab coat. He's not a, a primitive African, African man in a locust outfit. And th this what I learned from the director or from the commentator, that entire scene was Pazuzu messing with him. And that is how Pazuzu, that's Pazuzu's version of Kokomo, not the real Kokomo. So then uh, basically he's awakened to the real Kokomo and that's where, or yeah. And then Kokomo leads him around the lab and they talk about fucking locusts and he talks about uh, the good locusts, all this crazy shit. Um, in New York, <laughs> Reagan has been taken from, the school to the child psychiatry research unit where it does Dr. Tustin's offices, I guess. I guess she was at school after all. Who knows? Um, blah, blah. Father Lamont flies back to New York and meets Reagan. The two of them, for some reason, go to a hotel and use the synchronizer that she stole from Dr. Tuscan's office. The two sit and put, put the things on their heads and lock minds. The room around them begins to fade, and in its place, they're in Reagan's bedroom again four years ago during the climax of the exorcism, and we get to see um, uh, Marin dying. You're dying, Marin, dying, and your hopes die with you. Marin, uh, Marin speaks to Lamont and Reagan. Not only Kokomo, but others like him begin to appear in the world. I found these people where I could and tried to protect them against evil. So Satan has sent Pazuzu to destroy this goodness. Philip, you must take my place. He's precious, and I entrust her to you. The mind link is broken. Father Lamont gets up and walks out of the room. And at this point, this is when the commentators say that Lamont is compromised. And he will be further compromised later, but I think now is when he starts to be like under the influence of the devil. And by now, both Sharon and Dr. Tuscan know that Reagan left and like disappeared, so they're waiting for some word. And then she actually like, calls them from New York's Penn Station, where they actually shot. <laughs> um, 
And they call, she calls and tells them where they're going. That they're going to Georgetown to face this demon once and for all because, you know, there's visions of it or something. Uh, so Reagan and Father Lamont go by train while Sharon and Tuscan go by plane. And there's this sequence where you're like cutting between the two. And what we're supposed to get from that, Jesse, is that <laughs> the, first of all, uh, from this point on, uh, Lamont does not wear his priest outfit because he's possessed by the devil. So he is now dressed in like a suit. And now he's on the train possessed with Reagan. And while he's on the train, he's looking up at the, the plane. And if you notice, there's a whole scene with turbulence. He's causing the turbulence. Oh. Lamont, uh, Pazuzu Lamont is causing the turbulence on the plane. The only reason he doesn't crash it is because Reagan like snaps him out of it. And then he like just for- forgets what he was doing. So basically, um, they get there. Father Lamont jumps the iron gate, leaving Reagan behind. Now inside the house, Lamont approaches the door to Reagan's room. He opens the door. A swarm of locusts explodes in his face. And right at that moment, Reagan gets out of the house. She covers her ears in the morning sound. And at that moment, a car passes the taxi, carrying Sharon and Dr. Tuscan to the house, and spits gravel on the windshield, breaking it. The driver loses control and dies actually really horrifically. In the shorter version, they show him die horrifically for some reason, not the longer version. Um <laughs> The taxi smashes through the gate and comes to a standstill just outside the door. Now, this is where the movie goes completely off the rails for audiences because all this, like, poltergeisty, like, the house falls apart, shit happens, and then, like, none of the, like, real world seems to notice around it. And that is explained by the fact that all of this stuff is supposed to have happened in, like, the blink of an eye, like, Inception style. Like, it, it all happened in the, in the mind's eye. Or, like, it only happened for these characters. Like, the real world didn't see it. So, like, that point where he opens the door is when that starts, I guess. Um, so, Reagan reaches, uh, yeah, Reagan reaches the top of the stairs and finds Lamont. He points towards her room. She gets up and walks to the door, opens it to sees herself sitting on the bed in a horrifying state of demonic possession. In the shorter version, they use actual footage from the old movie. In the newer version, they use the really bad stand-in. Uh, Sharon walks away from the cab. The, Sharon's also uh, possessed for an undisclosed amount of time throughout this most of this movie. The implied that she's like a weak person and she's just easy to manipulate. So she basically sets herself on fire like the girl in the beginning does. Um, upstairs, Father Lamont comes to his feet and is beating Reagan. Suddenly he remembers the words of Kokumo and the demon loses control over him. He makes his way towards the other Reagan on the bed. Lamont grabs the demon by the neck as he screams, Pazuzu. Then a huge locust swarm flies over Washington. This locust swarm is supposed to be demons descending upon the demon Pazuzu and all of his merry band of demons descending upon Washington. There's a, the, the theory is that basically in the mind or whatever they were doing in their, oh, whatever they're doing now in the house, basically Lamont just took Marin out of Pazuzu's grasp, or basically the movie posits that Marin's just been trapped reliving his death forever in Pazuzu's like purgatory kind of. So what just happened is like Lamont traded himself and saved Marin so now the demon is furious that Marin was taken out of his purgatory. And now that's what the huge locust storm heading to Washington is. Like it's an angry group of demons. And then it rushes at the bedroom window, which implodes, ripping frames and masonry. The walls crack and begin to fall. By the way, this big ending was written on the fly. They wanted a bigger ending. They knew they wanted a bigger ending. So the studio mandated it. This whole thing just feels like it's out of a different movie. It really does. Like the house falling apart, the walls crack. Yeah, yeah. 
it sort of gets into like, oh, we got to do like the exorcist, but bigger, but yep. they just kind of at the last minute <laughs> at the last minute. Exactly. The last 10 minutes of this movie, the walls crack and begin to fall as a vent in the floor opens under Reagan. Lamont's hand plunges deep into the demon's chest and pulls out a black heart. The house continues to collapse as Reagan falls to the floor and lands on the stairs below. Reagan repeats young Kokomo's action in the field where he has a bull roarer and he's swinging it around and dancing. And she begins to dance around doing Kokomo's dance her body seemingly suspended in space. Around her, the locust swarm subsides and disappears. And around her, her house is in ruins. Um, in the version you watch, the theatrical version, they have a shot of Lamont getting up and being alive. In the shorter version, he just dies. Um, <laughs> and then uh, there, he in the, other, in the theatrical version, he gives Sharon her last rites and Lamont turns toward the house. Um, and doesn't it just end? Lamont and Regan edge away. People come out of the house. Tuscan stares at the fading images of Regan and Lamont while the strobe effects from police and fire vehicles washes over her image. Yeah, you can see people start waking up to the... So that's you know, when... Suddenly, crowds are there. There's a shot, there's a shot where like, the camera goes around Louise Fletcher and you see the people come back, and that is when the reality sets in. Right. And right. that is something that I would not have known without the commentary. So... That was the movie, and now I have all the fun, everything, the commentary. <laughs> so what, after me reading through that, does that sound like the movie you watched? Do you think that <laughs> – I'm, I'm genuinely asking, and then also yeah, – Yeah, yeah. Does, does that square with my experience Because, like, I read that, and I'm like, what? I didn't <laughs> – it took me watching the commentary to be like, oh, okay. I guess I get that. I, I think, you know, about half of it, it squares with the movie I watched – the other half, like I said, it sort of makes sense, if you can use the word sense, and I'm not sure I can properly, uh, it, in terms of like, okay, this is an expansion of, <laughs> of what I want. This is like the, I feel like you just described the director's cut and I watched the cut down version, except I watched You didn't, yeah, you watched, I know, it's so weird. For some <laughs> so, reason, the cut down version does feel more complete to me. It's weird. Uh, yeah, and I like, you know, I noticed certainly the people not being around and then suddenly coming back in one shot. I didn't know, like, the exact mechanics of that. I did not pick up on the demon possession being as long as it was. I thought maybe it was sort of, I kind of felt like it was making him sick or making him unsure of himself or, or something. Like, the demon was having some effect. I didn't realize it was possession or that he was causing the turbulence. Again, I kind of chalked up that plane turbulence to just general d demon fuckery or whatever. Um... So I, you know, I, bits and pieces of it came through. And some of those bits and pieces I really enjoyed. I really liked the James Earl Jones character. I actually love the kind of crazy dream logic jump from him being, you know, confronting this tribal guy and falling on nails and then suddenly waking up in like a very modern lab where the same guy is actually like a doctor or a scientist, yeah. you know, <laughs> studying locusts. And then him giving us a lesson about locusts and shit, I thought was actually really weird and cool and interesting. Um, I just don't know that the movie really ties all that, like, shit from The Exorcist from the first movie together very well. I certainly didn't get that Father Marin was in some kind of purgatory. I was just wondering why the fuck we're still talking about Father Marin, a character who in the movie's timeline died four years ago. Like, yeah. it just, you know, I feel like Reagan is the character who's here. This boring character played by Richard Burton is the other guy who's here. Um, you know, the the guy from Africa played by James Earl Jones is there. Why not make the movie about the characters who are in the movie <laughs> rather than the guy who is maybe trapped in purgatory in a way that it was not adequate, adequately explained. So, it, yeah, I mean, as at, the, at first I was like, OK, I mostly got that, mostly got all that. But as it goes on, it certainly accumulates things that the movie <laughs> does not see fit to 
explain i think the, the movie seems to think that it's explained some of these things visually which i'm very into i'm glad that there's not like torrents of exposition but i don't think it's all this i mean i think it's very much in keeping with the original exorcist where i'm kind of going wait huh, why was i supposed to get that from that um, well there's a torrent of exposition edition on the um <laughs> the shorter version has that at the end where it's kind of like uh -huh. trying to explain all those things i read but right. it still doesn't really help <laughs> and there's a scene that they the, the Scott both both commentators Scott Bosco I think is one of them and then Mike White's the other one. Um, there's this scene that they both say is like the philosophy of the film wrapped up, and it's the scene where it's a projection of the mind is set. Basically, there's a scene where Reagan is tricking Sharon with like the spoons by watching on TV like the person uh -huh. doing the spoon tricks, and then she basically tricks her and then realizes and then she shows her how she did it. And then there's a line on TV and then it cuts to the hard cut to them in the mind hive. And it's like, it's merely an illusion, a projection of the mind. And from that, from that, we were supposed to take that the synchronizer sessions, we must understand that these are the projection of the mind. A new dimension is opened, which the characters have fallen into. It's in between the beats of a heart and a blink. Time is suspended for action to take place. Rules of nature have been changed. It's very important, especially to understand this when you get to the ending. So this whole thing is the, the way that Scott Bosco describes the whole, like any time they're in the mind high, he describes it as a new domain is opened, a breach in the domain of our reality in which the supernatural world can exist or can loop humanity in. So basically this machine, this synchronizer, is like a Ouija board that allows them to communicate with an alternate world where the supernatural exists. And anything is possible here. The entire concept of what Reagan is actually doing is the teaching of a French priest, as I mentioned, who believed humanity was on the verge of doing something new and different, God's way of dealing with the earth being visited by negative entities. Let me just read. This was in the, this was in the press notes for the movie. Um, the explanation of the theology. It's so funny that they included this. Hold on. Where did that go? Okay, it was Telhard de Chardin who has affected a threefold synthesis of the material and physical world with the world of the mind and spirit, of the past with the future, and of variety with unity, the many being the many with the one. Believing that man and nature would eventually achieve a oneness with God, Teilhard agreed that with Nietzsche's view that man is unfinished and must be surpassed or completed. Teilhard sought to link the evolution of man with the concept of energy, in this context what he called psychic energy. Most crucially, as Huxley points out, Teilhard had a conviction of the supreme importance of personality. A developed human being, as he slightly pointed out, is not merely a more highly individualized individual. He has crossed the threshold of self-consciousness to a new mode of thought, and, a result has achieved some and as a result has achieved some degree of conscious integration and inter interation of the self with the outer world of men and nature, integration of the separate elements of self with each other. He is a person, an organism, which has transcended individuality and personality. This attainment of personality was an essential element in man's past and present evolutionary success. Accordingly, its fuller achievement must be an essential aim for its evolutionary future. And so it is that modern science is enveloping some of those ideas which begin as religious philosophy, hearsay some say, <laughs> expanding its parameters to include some once alarming ideas as those expressed in the book Mind Reach. This study uses the methodology of contemporary quantum physics, specific qualities of electromagnetic field, and advances in brain research to prove the existence of remote viewing. This validation by scientific experiments, which can be repeated and revalidated re under controlled conditions, gives exciting credibility to the idea that psychic phenomena and paranormal ex 
experiences are basic to the reality of all human experience. As G. Spencer Brown wrote in Laws of Form, discoveries of any great moment in mathematics and other dis disciplines, once they are discovered, are seen to be extremely simple and obvious and make everybody, including their discoverer, uh, appear foolish for not having discovered them before. What Reagan McNeil and the people with whom she interacts discover is something this basic, and yet because it strains what was considered scientific acceptability, it is as terrifying as it is enticing, as frightening as it is seductive. Perhaps in her mind reach back to Father Marin and forward to Father Lamont, Reagan bridges that rapidly closing abyss between the astonishing foresight of Teilhard de Chardin and the slowly awakening giant of modern science. Now, Jesse, as a film critic, you get a lot of press notes. <laughs> <laughs> have yes. you ever seen that and like that type of shit in press notes? Like press notes are not for dispensing the theology that's like <laughs> kind of relevant to this. Like it's just so bizarre that they really included that to me. Yeah, that is that I'm surprised, especially in the seventies that there would be something that voluminous and also that's not just like a poorly written biography of, of the person who made the movie. I, is My question is, is the heretic of the title like the real Jesuit who inspired the movie? Is that the idea? Like, uh, Yes, that's one interpretation. But like in the scene we get taken, that's been deleted apparently, there's the scene basically calling Burton's character the heretic. Um, okay. I think I'll get there eventually. But <laughs> um, basically, Blatty and Freakin spoke out against this movie. But the, the commentator basically says they're stupid because they didn't understand what the movie was about. Um <laughs> It's funny that there are scenes with Marin here where he's in young age makeup because in the other one he was in old age makeup and this time he's in flashbacks and he has to be younger. Uh, so that's really funny uh, that I found. <laughs> uh, they use real locusts, as I mentioned, imported them all. They're all female. They couldn't be mixed in with males because they would breed. Um, the tagline is, for this movie, the, the, one of the commentators got really mad about the taglines. And it's four years later, and what does she remember? But he says, we find that out very quickly, which she remembers. Um, <laughs> the original teaser shows a shot of Burton that's not in the movie. And they use the tagline, Warner Brothers takes you a step beyond. And that's a better tagline for this movie, at least a more accurate one. Um, the film is uh, very Hollywood. It goes further than the first in terms of supernatural and the realm of the metaphysical, and they should have pushed it more, this commentator says. Maybe if it was stressed to the audiences, this guy basically blames the advertising for Universal for messing up the movie. He says if it was stressed to the audience ahead of time, they couldn't have ready for it. They had a different mindset. Instead, the WB marketing was like the fucking bigger and better sequel. Did you see the, did you watch the trailer I sent? It just has the Ennio Morricone music and it's basically a clip show of every shot in the movie, but for two minutes. It's a really, <laughs> it's a good trailer, but it, it's, it's not what the movie is. It definitely misrepresents what the movie is. Um, so the girl is mirroring what uh, Reagan goes through when she's possessed this autistic girl. This movie has this weird implication that like there's something inside the, the mind of mental Ill, Ill, mentally ill people that's stopping them from being normal. Like, and the movie kind of, the first movie kind of gets at that too. The idea that what if demonic possession is just mental illness or the, the, the opposite? What if yeah, mental right. illness is demons fucking with people? And like this movie yeah. kind of doubles down on that, I would say. Well, and I, I get that it was 1977 and people were not as, as strong in our understanding of autism, for example, as they do now. I mean, you look at yeah. something like Rain Man, which is limited in his understanding. And that was 11 years after this, but it's still kind of crazy that like their idea of autistic is this girl can't talk. There's some kind of block on her speaking. And then when she speaks for the first time, she calmly informs Reagan that she's autistic. 
Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. She, and like, and that's why she couldn't speak. It's just this. It is. It's a very weirdly like literal minded. Like, remove this bad thing, and your mental illness is cured, which yeah. is bizarre. And a little problem. Kind of unhealthy and outdated. Yeah. Um, Burton's becoming more of a heretic. He goes to the Vatican. They get argumentative. There's very revealing dialogue. Uh, there's basically that scene leads to a cut. The cut scene there is when he's called a heretic, when he's basically going off about what the church refuses to accept. Um, and Marin's considered the heretic because of his teachings about blah, blah, he's taking his place. So it all makes sense. Um, the foam flops so bad, blah, blah, blah cost $17 million. Uh, Oh, the, uh, Borman was out on this movie for six weeks. They said he almost died. He got something called, san joaquin valley fever a respiratory fungal a fungal infection um it sounds like he got that maybe while they were like he didn't take um the shots he had to take i think both commentaries had different takes on this i think one of them said he got it when he came back from burbank and it was ironic that he did all this globe trotting and then got it at burbank and another person says he got sick because of like the dust when they were filming in Africa or whatever. Um, but either way, he was out for six weeks so much, so long that like production was delayed and they almost replaced him, uh, but they didn't. And he came back. Uh, speaking of delays, Linda Blair was apparently notoriously like late all the time. So much so that like it held up production constantly. And like she bragged once to the director, I'm only 10 minutes late today. Uh, <laughs> and like it became a whole thing. She also, this is nothing to do with anything, but did, I, I found that she looked so much like Amy Schumer in this movie. That's what my fiance said, and I, I, I can't argue. When she said it, I put it in my head. I'm like, yeah, that's 100% true. Um, there's this scene where I just got to the note where it says, he says, I'm going to spit a leopard at you, and then he spits out a cherry tomato. Yes, I just don't know what the fuck that is, and none of the commentators did either. None of there's them. Not, it, there's not a missing scene that explains what that means. <laughs> no, there is not. Um, I already talked about the third act. Okay, I'm just going to basically, instead of my notes, I'm going to read the website of one of the commentator guys, because he um, basically wrote down all the important notes that I have here. Let's see. Uh, so... If you're saying to yourself, that's not the film I saw, you're probably right. The Heretic can be very confusing. There are three versions. The first ran during the first theatrical week, but the audience reaction was so bad that Borman was called back to read at the ending, as well as redubbed some of the lines. It seems that people were throwing things at the screen as well as walking out of the theater. No one accepted it or understood it. Borman says the audience couldn't accept the secondary reality the picture suggests, that the ending all happens in perhaps a fraction of time. Um, it is tr- if this is true, then the audience is to blame in the beginning of the film. Um... Yeah, this is this, this is where he explains the thing with the t- the TV show shows a man bending a spoon with his mind. Reagan picks up two spoons and fakes Sharon into believing that she's bending them. The TV continues. Uh, they seem to defy the natural laws. How can that be? Some philosophers of our time say that the object world has a reality. The objective world has a reality, but it is merely an illusion, a projection of the mind. This scene clearly explains to the audience the premise of the film. It states that what we're about to see is a projection of the mind because what we're seeing takes place in the mind, physically only takes place in a fraction of a second for those not in mind link. That is why no one hears or sees the locust swarm or the house explode in the middle end of the film. It was made known to the people and only made known to the people in mind link. Everyone else only saw the end result. This concept runs throughout the entire film. Keeping the above in mind, use it towards another scene. When Lamont meets Kokomo, he loses faith in God and mind links with Reagan. In doing so, he contacts the demon. Why? 
Reagan's subconscious is being held by the demon. What she merely thinks of his dreams are in reality memories of Father Marin. So Reagan is actually contacting Father Marin. How? When Father Marin was killed in Georgetown, Pazuzu captured his soul and held it in the Coptic church in Africa where the demon first encountered Marin. Marin's soul is set free when Reagan and Lamont mind link for the last time in the hotel. The demon, in a rage, bursts out, leaves Africa, heads for Washington. So funny. Hilarious ends. In doing so, Marin's soul is freed and he is able to give uh, Reagan and Lamont the vital information needed to subdue Pazuzu. When Lamont meets Kakumo, the same thing happens. He was in touch with the demon, as well as Kakumo and Reagan. The demon interrupted Reagan's thoughts with the demon's view of Kakumo. So when Kakumo tells how to help Reagan, he gives instructions to kill both. This is why he asks which girl. Another confusing element concerns the locust. The locust is a symbol for the demon. In the original, a watchful film goer will notice that there's like the noise of the de- of locust at the beginning when he sees the stone structure of the demon, which actually has wings there too. Uh, the swarm itself represents the legions that Pazuzu commands. In the Exorcist, Father Karras tape records Reagan speaking in different voices, although what the spirit says is backwards. It says it ends up being, I am no one, I am no one, fear the priest, Dimmy, fear the priest, Marin, Marin, I am no one, Marin, let her die, give us time. This shows us two things. One, that the demon Pazuzu has many different spirits as command, making it a multi-personality possession. The second, it explains why different sounds and voices are heard in the first film. Throughout the entire second film, we see the, through the eyes of Pazuzu, come fly through the teeth of the wind. We soar and sway through Manhattan, Africa, and Washington. Thrice we actually see Pazuzu, and that is when it flies over Africa in the bedroom in Washington and towards the house at the film's end. I'm assuming Pazuzu is that really big locust that is at the center of the frame in those shots. <laughs> the main locust. Yeah. yeah, the main locust. The good locust. Not the good locust. Excuse yeah, me. I'm being locust. confused. The bad locust. In the film, everything's comprised of doubles, good, and evil. The locust explained above is the evil side, while Reagan the film, in the film is the good locust. Of course, the normal thing to think of, of Reagan, the good locust. Uh, the swarm also symbolizes the people of the earth, each brushing against each other, causing confusion, except one, the good locust. She will stop the chain reaction. She will soothe and heal. Soothe and heal. Another interesting element in this movie is science against religion and the old against the new. This is shown not only in objects, but also in characters. Father Lamont against Dr. Tuscan, primitive forces against new scientific ones, a demon against a synchronizer, a machine of the modern age. Sharing in this in its simplest form is a synchronizer sitting on an antique table. Something else that is used in the film are blinking lights. We see them on the synchronizer from police and fire vehicles, even on the bus. Considering this, the complexity and the meaning of the story unfolds. The synchronizer is a machine used to pull two altered states of consciousness into one. This is done by two hypnotic strobes, one for each person. The strobes themselves start very rapidly, and the deeper the patient is lowered into the hypnotic state, the strobe light decreases in pace. Under normal circumstances, the heart will beat quicker than that under hypnosis quicker than under hypnosis uh this is mimicked with the lights of the synchronizer many times during the film the strobe effect is used to demonstrate the mind link between the characters for example when lamont is in africa he's still able to mind link with reagan by the use of the lights around him he is standing in an area surrounded by dive vats and back of him is a setting sun slowly he moves to and fro blocking the sun and then revealing it creating a blinking light as reagan communicates back to him he is walking down the street with the light playing on his face in a blinking fashion as shadows from a fence other times that the light is used is when a character is in contact with the demon. This is obvious in the scene where Father Lamont and Reagan are on the train heading to Washington. Factory and city lights flash by, reflected on the window on the train. Lamont stares up in the sky and through the power of the demon jolts the plane that Tuscan and Sharon are on. In another scene, Lamont and Reagan are waiting in a bus. Lamont is aggravated by the bus driver on a break. A flashing parking yeah, light. Going to town on that sandwich. Yeah, and the commentator has this whole diatribe about how he, this is this thing in other states. New York, it would never happen. But in other states, 
bus drivers seem to be given breaks on the bus and they can't leave and they have to eat sandwiches and just sit there. And I was like, I don't know if that's true. Maybe that guy just took a break. I don't know, man. Um, a flashing parking light once again bleaks him into contact with the demon and brings out his other side. As the film ends in the first version, Dr. Tuscan, learning the truth, accepts her new beliefs as the light from the emergency vehicles wipe over her face. She is now joined into the neither world, into the netherworld of demons of Reagan and Father Lamont. Another element used are dreams. In the exorcist, Karis dreams of his mother. Um, Reagan's dreams are of Kokomo. His first confrontation with the demon where he fell, failed, and became possessed. She mimics him by sleepwalking while the demon leads her to the building's edge. She is awoken by the dove she takes care of. Unfortunately, many of these meanings are lost because of editing and changes in the film, not to mention a unique narrative. The scene in which this article opens with the demon confronting Lamont over his beliefs, making him a heretic to his own faith, is actually cut from the film. With much of the dialogue of the demon missing, so here the, the fault lies at Warner, complaining about a much too long film and doing so it missed. Uh, making matters worse, the second version we are left thinking that Father Lamont dies in the house destroyed, leaving Reagan standing there looking confused as hell. The movie, yeah, the movie I watched ends with her doing the spins. Just like it just it just fades <laughs> away. It's really crazy. Um, there's a bunch of scenes that weren't in the movie that are in the press notes, like her getting accosted on the streets of New York that was supposed to happen at some point. The most important scene cut from the film takes place during the final synchronizer session where Reagan and Lamont connect with Marin's spirit, which has been held by Pazuzu. We see Marin on the floor of the Georgetown room, but he stands and the room changes to the African Coptic Church. Really cool sequence, actually. As the scene continues, uh, wind builds, dust consumes the scene. It gathers around Marin, covering him and casing him. He raises his hand, wiping the dust from his face, and now it is Father Lamont. So we actually saw the scene of him being transferred out, which would have really helped explain that. And it just cut <laughs> from the movie. Um, so Mar Marin struggles to his feet as the Georgetown bedroom gives way and changes into the Coptic church. Winds suddenly break the Coptic church. Uh, the dust and dirt cling onto Marin. He turns to stone. Marin raises his hand to wipe away the dust. Blah, blah, blah. It's Lamont. Pazuzu laughs as Lamont struggles to ward off the overwhelming uh, force. Demon speaks. Are you holier than Marin? The wind whipping through the church erodes and eats into the rock. The ceiling cracks, pillars crumble and fall around Lamont. Pazuzu's voice rips through the church. Fear not, Father Lamont, you belong to me and the devil takes care of his own. Lamont screams, spare me, spare me. Uh, Marin's soul is freed, but now Lamont's is not. Um, it is odd that of all the things to cut out from the movie, this was cut because it obtains the movie's title. Uh, later, after the disastrous premiere, another cut scene between Lamont and Cardinal was truncated in which he speaks his mind freely about the church. And then this is all the stuff about the theology that I read. Um, and that's all of those notes. Um, I have a second commentary notes. I don't know how many things I haven't brought up yet. Uh, go ahead and speak. I know you're chomping at the just, bit. <laughs> I just think it's, you know, it's interesting to me. Like, I don't think this movie is as bad as, as its reputation. Definitely. And there's lots of stuff that's interesting in it. It is also interesting to me, though, Though I don't find The Exorcist, the original, that scary, I can understand why people freak out at it and find it, you know, pretty chilling. This movie, though, I think a lot of care went into making it, obviously. Borman obviously was interested and engaged by this material. It's interesting how it's sort of, I mean, some of it's just like a wealth of mythology and backstory and stuff that they can't include. But even if, you know, if that, even if that stuff was more clear, it wouldn't make the movie more scary. And this movie isn't especially scary, even when it kind of gets into that overdrive, horror overdrive stuff of the last 10 minutes. And that's such a peculiar, interesting, like, position that movie finds itself in, where it's sort of in, you know, it's an attempt to do something different with a sequel and to kind of come at this material in a different way. 
and they just can't i mean it just isn't a scary movie I don't know if that's on Borman not being, you know, that experienced at horror movies. I mean, Deliverance certainly has a reputation for being intense. It's not as if he's never done something that's suspenseful or scary in some way before. But and I felt this a little bit about Excalibur, too, where it's kind of a beautiful movie to look at and there's lots of cool stuff happening. But the plotting is sort of arbitrary. It's just sort of like it's a lot of plot that sort of exists unto itself and the characters don't really have that much room to breathe and and, you know i don't really have a grand point about this just that it's so interesting with horror movies how you can do a lot of stuff right or at least do a lot of stuff with like the best of intentions and still come up with something that's just like not it just essentially isn't scary and i'm surprised how much the contemporaneous reviews of the movie zeroed in on that because i think of horror as being sort of disrespected as a genre until like really like the last 20 years i mean obviously movies like the exorcist or halloween got some very good reviews in their day Mm-hmm. But there, I, I do think there were, it was not as valued as much. You didn't see as many critically acclaimed horror movies, so even even kind of second tier ones. I feel like that now would get like, oh, it's fun, like something like Crawl or whatever, where it'd be like, oh, that's a fun, it's a fun horror movie. It, you know, in the seventies, I don't think a lot of critics responded as well to that kind of horror movie. And Exorcist Two is not that kind. But I was just surprised to see so many contemporaneous reviews kind of harping on how unscary this movie is because. Uh, it's, I, you know, I, I would have thought if anything, it would be harped on for being, you so know, artful ahead of its yeah, time. Yeah, for being obtuse or well, being... Well, Pauline Kale was like one of its early adopters, I guess you'd say. She yeah. didn't love it, but she definitely praised its visuals and said there's and a lot of pref- interesting stuff going on. And preferred it to the original, if I recall Yes, correctly. and another famous person who prefers it to the original is Martin Scorsese, which I couldn't yeah. find the original quote, but he does say he likes it more than the original. Um, but to your point of why people are so focused on it not being scary, I think it's just because the original is, is heralded as the scariest movie of all time. But that speaks to why this movie is such an unsatisfying sequel, is that it's doing something, it's markedly doing it differently. It's not trying to make that type of movie at all. And it's in fact trying to undo everything that that other movie does. <laughs> so as a sequel to The Exorcist, it is immensely unsatisfying. And I actually totally get why audiences were so in disbelief by it. Especially because after the first time I watched it, I was pretty dazed by it and didn't really get it. So now that I get it, I'm like, I can think of it as like, oh, this is artful and interesting. But the first time you watch it, you're like, this is a movie built on an, an, a single strange idea that is very hard to take seriously, like The Synchronizer. Yeah. And for a movie that's a sequel about a possessed girl being possessed by a demon, and like, it's crazy that I had trouble believing that. It just is such a weird thing to harp on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, it's funny because, like, it's 48 minutes into the movie before Reagan shows her healing powers, which is supposed to be a huge point. It's an hour 15 minutes into the movie before we get to the idea of her being a good locust and, like, what, the, <laughs> what that means. Um, it's just, it's not a very well put together movie, no matter how you think of how cool you think the visuals are or how unique the movie is. I appreciate the fact that someone made um, this movie. Like someone took studio money to make a sequel to like this highest grossing horror movie. And they made this like this metaphysical crazy movie with like using silent film techniques. Like I appreciate that. Even if I don't, I watched the movie four times this week. I'm good. I probably, I probably won't watch it anymore. Um, but it's, I definitely appreciate what it's going for. And 
appreciate that it's not a typical horror sequel that's just like bigger, better, make the more pea soup vomit, more spinning heads. It doesn't do that at all. And like, I guess a tip of the hat to that, but there's definitely, that's like an anti-audience movie. Like if, 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 uh, what's it called? If CinemaScore were a thing in 1977 when this movie came out, it would, it would be an F because this yeah. movie was marketed as this horrifying sequel. And it was just this like, rumination on good and evil by someone who hated the first movie so much he like changed what everything meant about it so totally understand this movie's reputation at the same time i have a new appreciation for it after like watching all these commentaries and seeing what they're going for (laughs) yeah you have to hand it to to shout factory and scream factory for making this movie seem more interesting um is there anything else to note that you wanted to get off that you had in your notes or that you thought of while watching this insane movie? Uh, not particularly just that, you know, I, uh, yeah, but not, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> no, no, it's, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's a, baff- it's a baffling experience and it's left me fascinated, like both confused and fascinated about what John Borman's deal is as a director. And there's also a spiteful part of me that, likes the fact that it pissed off uh, yeah. Black because it, yeah. he, seems like a, he seems annoying <laughs> to me. I, I like the idea of any movie that like is actively a middle fingering uh, to its audience. Like I feel the same way about Spring Breakers, a movie that I don't like, but that movie <laughs> had a marketing campaign that like tricked a bunch of like teeny boppers to go see it because it had yeah. like Selena Gomez or whoever the fuck in it. Uh, and then that movie is just like this assault of weird art. <laughs> and I kind of appreciate this in that same way. Um, yeah. and something I, I don't think last week, cause we were just talking so much about the minutiae of the exorcist. I don't think we talked about why I liked it so much, which is like the performances in that movie, I think are really memorable. And in this movie, Richard Burton is just so <laughs> miscast, I think, or just like, yeah. he's just reading lines and he's often reading yeah. lines multiple times, a lot of re- repetition. Um, yeah. the original movie has such good performances. They're so lived in and we all know the techniques that freaking did to get those insane performances out of these people. And they're not really great tactics. But um, I, I just wanted to mention that, like, there's re- like the re- the movie, the original movie is a classic for reasons. Even if Jesse disagrees, there are <laughs> reasons that movie has stood the test of time and why this one hasn't. And why I mean, like, you could say it's stood the test of time and that it has a Shout Factory release and people are talking about it now. Um, but this movie is still, I don't know. Pauline Kael and Martin Scorsese are the only people I think who like this better than the original. I would say if I was John Borman and if it was like, well, uh, people call this like one of the worst movies of all time, one of the worst sequels of all time. If I could say, well, but but Kael and Scorsese are both into it, I'd be like, all right, that's a minor win. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Draw. <laughs> Kubrick told him he had to. He's a friend of John Borman, and he when he heard he got the project, he called him up and he said, you really have to top it. You really have to like do everything bigger and better. And he joked saying, you have to make the puke rainbow this time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's, that's why Kubrick's a genius. He knew about the rainbow puke. Yeah, right way before its time, before the rainbow bagel took over. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a the end. The end sequence really just becomes this weird chase scene that you don't really understand why people are rushing to Georgetown. It doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense until you I realize like, what's happening. You know, the, the annoying New Yorker meme where it was like, hmm, if you're taking a plane from New York to Georgetown and taking a train... There you go, pushing up your glasses again. <laughs> Excuse me, I calculated the difference. I just wasn't sure why they were able to beat them on the M-Track. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like that would take much longer. But what, it would especially take way the, longer. the lack of security of 1977 on the plane. <laughs> Absolutely. Um... 
there's a lot of, you know, themes and symbolism. There's opulence of the Vatican versus the primi primitiveness of Africa juxtaposed there. The really interesting thing, in the introduction of Louise Fletcher's character scene, you see her working with a deaf girl. And this is just a fun fact. Her parents, not really fun, I guess, just a fact. Her parents were deaf. And when Louise Fletcher won her Oscar a year before this movie, she gave a very heartfelt speech and thanked her parents in sign language. Oh. So there's this nice scene where uh, Louise Fletcher is working with a deaf girl at the very beginning. And you oh, have to imagine great. she's actually speaking sign language with her and stuff. Um, really nice scene. Uh, yeah, I think I went through most of my notes. Great commentaries. Awful Borman commentary. Great commentaries from Scott Michael Busbusco and Mike White. Thank you, Shout Factory, for this release. There is a book by the by the writer's wife, I believe, the screenwriter's wife, who wrote a book about the making of this movie, like the production, that talks about in like gory detail every single thing. And I tried to buy it. I almost dipped into the Patreon funds to do so, but I didn't think it was worth it for one episode. It's like 50 bucks for a paperback copy of this book. Cannot find it anywhere. But if you have a copy of Making of the Exorcist <laughs> 2, Bar by Barbara, whatever her name is, please uh, let me know. Send it to me. I'll send it back to you, I promise. Um, <laughs> do I have any other notes? Uh, I have that Kubrick note. Oh, here. Uh, Borman uh, set out to make a film that would be the exact opposite of the first film. Millions of people would watch a child being tortured in The Exorcist. The, the heretic would be an antidote, a film about goodness rather than evil. I should have known better. Kubrick told me the only way was to do a sequel was to give them more gore and horror than before. No one is interested in goodness. And he's right. Um, the the <laughs> sin I committed was not giving the audience what it wanted in terms of horror. There's this wild beast out there, which is the audience. I created this arena, and I just didn't throw enough Christians into it, is what he said. Um, <laughs> the final product strayed from the initial concept. Uh, the heretic was first envisioned. I already, I already said this. A very inexpensive effort, like the clip show, low-budget rehash. Uh, Richard Burton only did the movie for the money, which is totally fine. In the book that I talked about, he says, to be perfectly frank, I did this picture because although I had already had the film of Equus uh, and they didn't want me to do another one in between, I needed the ready cash for my divorce, which I knew would come up soon. <laughs> <laughs> Always planning for the future. <laughs> I love it. Um, there's some great stuff online about this movie. There's a Joe Bob Briggs Monster Vision clip uh, for, about this movie. Fun little wraparound. Uh, definitely watch it if you're curious, if you've never seen it. I think the first time you watch it, you'll be flabbergasted if you if you watch it first before listening to this podcast. And then you listen to this podcast, you watch it again, you'll be like, oh, okay, I, I kind yeah, of I mean, a, yeah. I appreciate what, I, what they're doing. I don't really like it still, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which uh, was called The Heretic. And Exorcist 3, which was just called Legion, um, is coming next. It has nothing to do with either of these. It is a Detective Kinderman film, but Detective Kinderman has been recast by, it's George C. Scott this time, because the guy who played Kinderman died, which is why the whole fucking movie Heretic got rewritten, <laughs> because he died. It was supposed to be him. Uh, so Legion is like a standalone-ish uh, Kinderman story, but if you talk to this commentator, one of them says you're supposed to watch Exorcist 1, then 3, then 2. That's the right order. Um, so we'll, <laughs> talk, yeah, we'll talk about that next week uh, with Exorcist 3, which is a great movie that, Jesse, I don't know if you know its reputation. People love this movie. It has a great reputation, even though it's not really connected to the franchise. Uh, it has, it's notable for having the, most, the best jump scare in horror, a lot of Ooh. people say. So if you don't know what that is, don't look it up, and you will be surprised when it happens. I, I certainly don't, so I'm very excited. Oh, it's on man. Amazon Prime if anyone wants to watch along. 
hell yeah. Dude, that's really cool. I wish I could see that scare for the first time without knowing. I'm pretty sure I had it ruined for me before I even saw the movie. Um, so yeah, next week we're back with Exorcist 3, uh, which is, again, was called Legion, but then became called The Exorcist 3. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. Please leave five-star reviews. I noticed a few more. Thank you guys so much. They're really great to read. Um, do those, please. They really help us. If I get, I found out if we get 200 reviews, that's how I can get considered for uh, my own Rotten Tomatoes slot instead of just getting Rotten Tomatoes when I write for an outlet that has Rotten Tomatoes on it. Oh. So if I get 200 ratings on the pod, they will consider us. So please... A hundred of you. Just do it. <laughs> just, the, just double the amount that we've had over five years. Just double that <laughs> overnight. That's fine. And also, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. I noticed some new subscribers there. I will give you a shout-out next week. Thank you guys so much. Uh, and here is Ennio Morricone's Magic and Ecstasy, which plays over the credits of the movie, I think on the shorter version, not sure about the longer version. Holy hell, I am not watching this movie anymore. Goodbye.
learned that death is not the end of the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. I was hoping you'd be back.